Well, good morning, everyone. We're, I'm going to be like a Pentecostal preacher this morning with the, with the wired mic. So uh, we'll get started with Sunday school because I have a lot of material to cover if you've seen the outline and not a lot of time. So uh, I will try to take questions at the end, but if I don't get to it, just please write it down and talk to me at some point. Uh, but before we get to it, let's uh, start in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the great, uh, the great wonder that your salvation is to us and the depths that we can plumb of your redemption that you've given to us through your Son and your Spirit. And Lord, we ask that you would uh, give us understanding by the power of your Spirit to uh, more deeply comprehend the mysteries of your salvation in our lives. Uh, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you were here last week, you'll remember that we're starting a series on the order of salvation. And we just gave a really quick intro to what the order is and why it's important last week. And uh, the order that we're going with is first effectual calling, then faith, then justification, then adoption, sanctification, perseverance, and then glorification. And this is the order in which salvation comes to believers through the Holy Spirit. And so today we're going to focus on the first two of those uh, aspects of the order of salvation, first effectual calling and then faith. So let's start with effectual calling. And if you are um, familiar with the Westminster Confession, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, you can look at chapter 10 of the Westminster Confession or question 31 of the Shorter Catechism. And question 31 gives a really nice, succinct definition of effectual calling, and we'll get to that uh, shortly. But first, first there, there are, there's more than one call, um, and we're going to distinguish the effectual call from a few other kinds of callings. So distinguishing the call, the first point there. Uh, the natural call is essentially just general revelation, right? It's, it's that all people are called to obey God's law. Um, it's a call that comes to everyone by nature. Then is special calling, and this is the way of salvation announced to certain people. It's another way of talking about special revelation. Um, it's, it's, it's the uh, calling to salvation. And there's two kinds of special calling. The first is external, and this is the audible call of the gospel preached. This is when the pastor preaches the gospel and people are hearing it with their ears. And then there's the internal calling, and this is the Holy Spirit's call in our hearts, persuading and enabling the elect to embrace Jesus as he is offered in the gospel. So both of them go together ordinarily. The external calling uh, goes out to the ears, and in the internal calling, which is the effectual calling, uh, the Holy Spirit goes out to the heart and, uh, and turns it toward Jesus. So that's distinguishing the call from the other calls. So now we're going to define what that last one is, that internal or effectual calling, uh, and, and this is adapted from uh, Murray's Redemption Accomplished and Applied. Uh, so first, the author of the call. Who is the author? The author of the call is God. Uh, we can see that in 1 Corinthians 1.9. God is the one who calls us. Humans are passive in effectual calling. It's something that's done to, for, or in us. Um, and particularly, the author of the call is the Father. Uh, and you can see that again in 1 Corinthians 1.9, where uh, the one who calls is distinguished from God's Son. And so there's a, a distinction between the Father and the Son in 1 Corinthians 1.9. And so the one who calls is particularly the Father. Um, and you can see that also in 1 John 3, 1, where it says, 
uh, with, what, with what love the Father has loved us, that we should be called his sons. Uh, and so, yeah, the Father is particularly the one who calls, but he calls through the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the agent. Uh, we can see in John 14, 26, that the Father sends the Spirit, um, and he does that so that he might draw believers to himself. You can see that in John 3, 3 uh, and 5, and John 6, 44. In John 3, 5, uh, Jesus says that in order to see the kingdom of heaven, you must be born by the Spirit and water. And so he's talking about effectual calling there. He's talking about the Spirit's work of giving rebirth. Um, and then in John 6, 44, Jesus says that um, in order to come to him, the Father must draw you to uh, Jesus. And that's, he does that through the Holy Spirit. Uh, so in other words, like all of the works of the Trinity in the world, effectual calling is from the Father, in the Son, and by the Spirit. Uh, there's no work of the Trinity in the world that is just one or the other person. It's, it's all of them working together in their own uh, unique way. And so it's from the Father as the source, in the Son, by the Spirit. And so the call originates with the Father. He's the author. The content of the call is the Son, and the call is delivered and made effectual by the working of the Spirit. Um, yeah, so that's the author, that's who, the agent, and that is the content of the call. Next is the nature of effectual calling. First, of course, it's effectual, and that means it's not just an invitation. It isn't just words that are spoken. It accomplishes what it proclaims. As God said, let there be light, or Jesus said, Lazarus, come out, so the internal call of the Spirit does what it says. It's powerful. Uh, as Paul says in Romans 4:17, God gives life to the dead and calls into existence things that do not exist. And so the call is effectual, but it, that means it's permanent. If it does what it says, then it cannot be changed or revoked. It cannot be undone. Uh, those whom the Father draws to himself will be raised by Jesus on the last day, according to John 6, 44. So if he calls you, you will be raised on the last day. Uh, Romans eleven twenty nine really clearly says the calling of God is irrevocable. So it's permanent, and that means it's eschatological. It is a call to the new creation, to the new heavens and the new earth. Um, in Romans 8.30, Paul says, Those whom God calls, he glorifies. And so there's an end in sight with the calling, and the end is glorification in the new creation, in heaven. Uh, Hebrews 3.1 says it is a heavenly calling. Both in origin, it goes out from heaven, and in goal, and it's, it's bringing us back to heaven. Um, yeah, you can see that as well in John 3, 5. Uh, those who have bo been born of the Spirit will see the kingdom of God. So it's eschatological. It's also holy. Uh, we see this in 1 Peter 2, 9. We are called out of darkness and into light. And so the life we are called into is one of holiness, a way of life that is separate from the sinful world from which we are called. Uh, Romans 1, 7 says we are called to be saints, and that word saint means holy one. And so we're exhorted to uh, live in a holy way, live in a manner uh, worthy of our calling. And so it's a holy calling as well. Next is the foundation. What is the foundation of the calling? And very simply, the foundation of effectual calling 
is God's eternal decree of election. So those whom he predestined, he called, Romans 8, 30. Uh, and this foundation of election is in Christ, according to Ephesians 1, 4 through 5. And so the foundation of, ele- of effectual calling, that grace by which God calls us into salvation, the foundation is election in Christ. In other words, God's plan of salvation, or you could say the covenant of redemption, uh, you can see this in 2 Timothy 1, 9, where Paul grounds our calling in God's eternal purpose of salvation. And so, so yeah, so effectual calling is, is founded, it's, it's built upon God's purpose of election. Last, the means, or sorry, not last, there's, I think, one more after the means, yeah. But the means of effectual calling, and this means uh, what is used to uh, affect the calling. What is, is there a, uh, a media, per se, a, a means by which the Holy Spirit does this? And so the effectual calling is the work of God's Spirit, but the Spirit ordinarily performs this uh, through the means of the Word. And that's the connection between external and internal calling that I started with. So uh, we can see in James 1.18, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. In other words, literally, he, he gave birth to us by the word of truth. And so that's re- being reborn by the word. First Peter 1.23, you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. Uh, and of course, Romans ten seventeen, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. And so the word of God, the Bible, is the ordinary means that the Holy Spirit uses to call us to salvation and faith. Um, it's the external calling going along with the internal calling. That's ordinarily how it works. We hear the gospel preached and the Holy Spirit works through that gospel in our hearts and brings us to believe that gospel promise. Other denominations believe that baptism is a means of regeneration, and this is, you know, baptismal regeneration, if you know that language. Uh, They say that baptism is another means alongside the word, and this would be Roman Catholicism, Eastern Orthodox, or even Lutheranism. They say that baptism uh, also regenerates. But there's no clear statement in scripture uh, about baptism doing this. Uh, That would be equivalent to James 1.18 or 1 Peter uh, 1.23. They do appeal to certain passages like Titus 3.5, John 3.5, 1 Peter 3.21, but these are indirect, and you can only conclude that it's talking about baptismal regeneration if you bring that assumption to the text. In other words, it begs the question. Uh, You have to assume that baptismal regeneration is true before reading those passages. Uh, and even more, even a bigger problem than it not being explicit in Scripture is that there are significant theological problems with baptismal regeneration because it causes regeneration to be losable because those who are baptized often do walk away from the faith. And so if they were regenerated by their baptism, that means they have lost their regeneration But the purposes of regeneration is glorification, as we saw in Romans 8.30. Those who are called are glorified. Um, And that means it's eschatological, it's uh, it's irrevocable and determined. We can see this especially in 1 Peter 1.3-5, 
Blessed be God, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. That's effectual calling or regeneration. He's caused us to be born again through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. And so that means if you are born again according to a living hope, uh, according to a living hope, you're born to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, and kept in heaven for you. That means you can't lose it. Uh, no matter what you do, you can't lose that inheritance that you were born again to. And so uh, regeneration cannot be lost. And if some who are baptized later do walk away from the faith, then it's very problematic to say that, that baptism would regenerate you. Baptism is not the means of regeneration, but it is a sign and seal of it. It's a sacramental sign and seal of our regeneration, but it doesn't cause our regeneration um, because regeneration cannot be lost. And so what about infants and those who aren't called by the word? Um, if an infant uh, passes away in their infancy and they're not able to hear and respond to the gospel, can they still be saved? And the answer, of course, is yes. Uh, you have some, uh, some quotes from the uh, catechisms there, the Confession and the Canons of Dort there. Um, but in other words, the Spirit remains sovereign. He's not so tied to the external preaching that he cannot save people by other means. And so the Spirit remains sovereign and reserves for himself extraordinary operations in which the effectual call is separate from the internal call. And the best example of this is Luke 1.41, where John the Baptist is still in his mother's womb, and he leaps for joy when he's in Jesus' presence. And so he's clearly regenerate, um, even though he's still in the womb. And, and even Lutherans concede that point, but they still say that it's baptism that regenerates. And so, yeah, that's baptismal regeneration. Uh, it causes a lot of problems for our theology. Next, the priority of effectual calling. In other words, this is first in the order of salvation. Effectual calling comes first. Uh, and this is because by nature we are dead in our trespasses and sins, according to Ephesians 2.1. We're unwilling and unable to turn to Christ in faith. We're dead. A dead man can't respond in faith. And so we need a sovereign act of God so that we're able to respond positively to the gospel. We need a new heart a heart that is willing and able to embrace Jesus. And this is what the Spirit does to us in the effectual calling. As we see in Ezekiel 36, John 3, 5, Ephesians 1, 18. Uh, Ephesians 1, 18 says that uh, the Spirit opens the eyes of our hearts. We are enabled by effectual calling to reach out in faith and believe in Jesus. And so effectual calling... Uh, gives us this new heart so that we're able to believe. It initiates our union with Christ, according to 1 Corinthians 1.18. He calls us into union with his Son. Effectual calling is the link between the eternal decree of predestination and our subjective apprehension of redemption. In other words, those whom he predestined, he called. It's the, it's the link between the eternal purposes of God and our reception of redemption. Uh, so calling is essentially the initial work of application upon which all subsequent redemptive works are founded. And you have those texts on your handout there, just in case you're curious um, whether that's true or not. There are some texts that are proving that 
effectual calling causes all of the subsequent blessings. And so we'll close with effectual calling with a quick um, argument in favor of viewing effectual calling as the same as regeneration. So John Murray, whose book I'm kind of basing this study off of, uh, Redemption Accomplished and Applied, he argues that effectual calling and regeneration are distinct. He says that the order is effectual calling, then regeneration, then faith. And he says regeneration is the work that imparts faith. It enables us to respond to the effectual calling. Uh, Burkhoff, Louis Burkhoff, uh, in his systematic theology, argues that it, the order is regeneration and then effectual calling. He says regeneration is a rebirth in the subconscious life and effectual calling is a rebirth in the conscious life. I don't really know what that means, but that's what he says. Uh, and, but both of them distinguish between effectual calling and regeneration, right? Uh, but neither of them give a, a convincing biblical argument for it. They kind of just say, it's what makes sense. It's logical, this is why this is the order that makes sense, and this is why we should distinguish them. But if the internal call, the effectual call, if it's effectual, then another step is unnecessary. The inward call of the Holy Spirit does what it says, like I said. It invites us to believe, and then it enables us to believe. It isn't just an invitation. It actually brings people from the darkness into the light. And so the grace to accept the call is present in the call itself. Uh, early Reformed theologians used these terms differently. Regeneration described sanctification, the ongoing work of renewal. Um, you can see that especially in Calvin. Regeneration means our sanctification. But over time, Reformed theologians came to use regeneration to refer to the initial new birth, which results in faith, that initial work of renewal in our hearts. And so when this happened, it, it, regeneration was a synonym for effectual calling. And this is how the Westminster Standards present it in chapter uh, uh, 10. There is a chapter for effectual calling and no subsequent chapter for regeneration. They're not distinct. Uh, we can see in chapter 10, the effectual call is the work of God in which he takes away our heart of stone and gives us a heart of flesh. That's regeneration language. Uh, and then in, in section 2 of chapter 10, the effectual call is God's free and special grace alone, not from anything at all foreseen in man who is altogether passive. Until being quickened and renewed by the Holy Spirit, he is thereby enabled to, call, to, to answer this call and to embrace the grace offered and conveyed in it. In other words, the ability to answer the call is given in the call itself. That's what the Westminster Standards say, and that means effectual calling is the same thing as regeneration. And this is how scripture presents it as well. Uh, Paul doesn't say, uh, those whom God called, he regenerated, and those whom he re regenerated, he justified. But in, the, in Romans 8.30, he just says, those whom he called, he justified. Uh, therefore, they should be seen as one blessing, and they're just two different ways of looking at the same thing. Two different perspectives. Effectual calling looks at things from an outside perspective, the spirit and the word calling sinners to salvation. And regeneration looks at things from an inside perspective, the spirit and the word working in the heart to change the orientation from death to life. So there are just two different ways of looking at the same blessing. Okay, so we got through effectual calling. We'll see how far we get through faith. <laughs> Good amount of material to cover through still. 
But so we're going to start on faith, and this is the fruit of effectual calling. This is what the Spirit. Uh, this is what the Spirit does in our hearts when He calls us effectually. He brings us to faith, so that we're able to uh, embrace Jesus Christ as He is offered in the gospel. And a, a good definition for uh, faith is found in Westminster Shorter Catechism 86. Uh, but before we get to defining it, we'll first distinguish it, because there are multiple different kinds of faith. And this actually came up last week. Um, we talked about temporary faith very briefly last week. But there's two main kinds of faith, non-saving faith and saving faith. And there are three kinds of non-saving faith. The first is historical faith. This is what we see in James 2.19. This is a belief that the events or teachings of Scripture are true. The, th- uh, the second is temporary faith. And this is um, an experience or feeling that you have believed in God for salvation, but it doesn't last. Um, just as Matthew 13 uh, presents uh, in, the, in the parable of the sower, some seeds seem to sprout, but then they're choked out by the weeds. And that's what temporary faith is. It seems to be faith, but it isn't because they fall away. It doesn't last. And the last uh, non-saving faith is faith in miracles. And this is mainly present in the Gospels. I don't think it's present today, but... It's a belief in Christ to receive or perform miracles. You can see that in Matthew, uh, or sorry, Mark ten fifty two. And then true and saving faith. There are two kinds. First, general faith, which is responding appropriately to all of God's word, and then special faith, responding appropriately to Christ and His gospel. And so, when we're talking about saving faith, we're really talking about special faith, particularly the response to Christ's gospel. Uh, to believe and receive salvation. And so let's define this special faith, this saving faith. Traditionally, in the Reformed tradition, there have been three aspects of saving faith. It's a threefold definition. The first is knowledge. It's, it's what we know about Christ. We need to know certain things. You know, he died, rose again um, on our behalf. We need to know certain things about Jesus and his gospel. The second is assent which is that we're assenting to the truth. We're, we're agreeing that what we know about the gospel and Jesus is true. And then trust, putting one's confidence in Christ and his gospel. And that is really the heart of faith, is trust. Uh, Rome, uh, the Roman church, has a different understanding of faith. And this, is, um, this kind of stems from Thomas Aquinas, who is a medieval theologian. Uh, he defined faith as only the, two fir- the, the first two things, only knowledge and assent. Uh, so they left out uh, trust, and Rome continues to, for the most part, leave out trust as part of faith. Uh, so for, for Rome, faith is more a way to have knowledge, not a way to receive salvation. Uh, Aquinas distinguished faith from reason, rather than what we would do, which is distinguishing faith from works, right? And so faith and reason were two ways of knowing, but faith and works are two ways of receiving salvation that are distinct. Um, And so Rome only has uh, faith as a way of knowing, only knowledge and assent, no trust. Rome also has what they call implicit faith, um, and there's this quote from Ignatius of Loyola that's pretty famous, what seems to me white, I will believe black if the hierarchical church so defines it. Basically, implicit faith says that a Roman Catholic doesn't need to understand everything that um, the church teaches, but he needs to trust implicitly that everything that they teach is true. He doesn't need to know it or understand it. He just needs to trust that the church 
everything that the church teaches is true. Rome also has a different concept of dead faith. According to Rome, living faith is formed by love, um, but so, so in other words, uh, living faith is faith plus love, faith plus good works, in other words, um, and that's what justifies, that's justifying faith. But faith that isn't formed by love is dead. It doesn't justify, but it's still faith, according to Rome. You can still have faith without love, um, and you can still have faith without being justified, because you need love to be justified. Of course, we would say that dead faith is not true faith at all, as we see in in James 2. Uh, Love doesn't create or form true faith. Rather, love necessarily flows from true faith. And that's, again, what we see in James 2. Love is the evidence of true faith. It doesn't form it. It doesn't come before it. It flows from it. And, um, you know, while Rome rejects the third aspect of faith, being trust, others in recent years have tried to add to those three they add, um, sometimes they add what they call allegiance or faithfulness, um, and others add love to the definition of faith. And so this is modern additions to faith. So the first one, faithfulness or allegiance, uh, this is based off of the Greek word pistis, which can either mean faith, uh, as in trust, or it can mean faithfulness, as in obedience. Uh, for example, Romans 3.3 says God is pistis, which would mean faithful, not uh, that God is trusting or something like that. God is faithful in Romans 3.3, 3, but it's that same word that can mean faith in other places. And so authors that would argue that faithfulness is part of the definition of faith, they basically say that these words are interchangeable, that it can mean faith and faithful at the same time. But that's not how words work. You know, you only mean one uh, meaning of your word at once. You, unless you're using a unless you're using a figure of speech, unless you're using a double entendre, when you use a word, you only mean it in one way at a time. Uh, and so that's the, that's the case with the word pistis. It only means faith or faithfulness. It can't mean both at the same time. And, you know, trust and faithfulness are different com- concepts. And a person can have trust without being faithful, and a person can be faithful without having trust. So it's not part of the definition. You can't, you can't import faithfulness or obedience into the definition of faith or trust. And even more importantly, the reason we need salvation is because we aren't faithful. We don't have this obedience or faithfulness. Um, and so we can't add faithfulness to the definition of faith because our unfaithfulness is the very reason that we need salvation by faith. Um, Others try to add love to the definition of faith, and this is actually John Piper in his book, What is Saving Faith? I know there are probably some Piper fans out there. I'm not saying everything he says is wrong. I'm just saying this book um, makes a pretty serious error because in this book, he argues that faith isn't just knowledge, assent, and truth, those essential three parts of faith. He wants to add affectional elements of loving, delighting, or treasuring. Uh, He adds that to the definition of saving faith, that you need to love Christ, you need to treasure, delight in Christ. And he's for the most part following Jonathan Edwards, who wrote uh, Religious Affections. Um, And he he doesn't say that faith is receiving Christ as a treasure, that would be true, but he says that faith treasures Christ. 
Christ. Faith loves Christ. And while it sounds nice, it sneaks works into justification because love is obedience. It's not just an emotion. We see that in 1 John 5, 2 through 3, the one who loves him will obey his commandments. And so Piper would be right if he just said that love for Christ flows from faith, that love is the result of true and saving faith. That's absolutely right. But he says that love is part of the essence of faith, which means that love needs to come before we are justified. It means that we're justified by faith and love. When you add love to the definition of faith, you become justified by faith and love. And so the Roman error of subtracting trust and the modern error of adding love or faithfulness are opposite, but they end in the same place, right? Both errors say we are justified by the way of obedience or love. Rome says faith plus love equals justifying faith. Others say justifying faith includes love in its definition. And that's a way of sneaking works into justification. But on the other hand, you know, contrary to Rome, who says faith is only knowledge and assent, and those who add a fourth aspect, the Reformed churches emphasize that trust is the heart of faith. The heart of faith is trust. And so not only do we believe that something, but we believe in someone. Uh, we see that in 2 Timothy 1.12. We believe in someone. Saving faith is directed outward. It's extrospective, directed outward. And it's uh, directed outward to Christ. It's confidence in Christ. We see in Westminster Confession uh, 14, section 2, the principal acts of saving faith are accepting, receiving, and resting upon Christ alone for justification, sanctification, salvation, etc., and these three principal acts of saving faith are all aspects of trust. It's all that third part of uh, the essence of faith, that trust. It's resting, receiving, and accepting upon Christ alone. And so faith is really shifting from self-reliance to reliance on Christ. It's, it's passive. It's an empty hand that receives it is accepting and resting on Christ's finished work. We don't bring anything to the table. We just receive what Christ has brought us. And so that's the heart of faith. It's trust in another. It's trust in Christ. The subject of faith, um, basically, we are the ones who believe. God doesn't believe for us. Uh, faith is our act. It's an act that God uh, enables. God gives us the gift of faith, but we're still the ones who believe. This seems obvious, but... Recently, some scholars have confused this. Um, I can't really go in depth on that, but basically, recently scholars have said um, when there's a word, you know, there's a word in, in the New Testament where it says uh, the faith of Christ. Oftentimes in English, it's just translated the faith in Christ, which is correct. But scholars re recently have said that when it says faith of Christ, it's Christ's faith. So it's Christ's faith, and we either need to imitate it or uh, he believed on our behalf or something like that. Um, but Jesus did not need saving faith because he didn't need salvation, right? Um, he was the one who was saving us, and we're the ones who need to believe in him for salvation. He didn't have saving faith. So we are the subject of faith. We are the ones um, who do the believing. And the object of faith, who do we believe in, 
Um, the object of special faith is first and foremost is first and foremost Jesus. As we saw in Westminster Confession 14, accepting, receiving, and resting in Christ. Uh, we see also John 3:16, whoever believe in uh, God's Son, right, uh, and elsewhere, several times in the New Testament, we believe in Christ especially. The object of general faith, um, if you remember that distinction that we made early on, general faith, uh, ex- uh, responding correctly to all of God's word. The object of general faith is just God's word. It's, it's the Bible. And we see this in Luke 24, 25, uh, where Jesus speaks to his disciples on the road to Emmaus and says um, that they would believe all that the prophets have spoken. In John 2, 22, after his, rex- after his resurrection, Jesus' disciples believed the scriptures and the word that Jesus had spoken. So that's the object of faith. Uh, faith in its order of salvation context. If you'll remember, it's effectual calling, then faith, then justification, etc. So faith comes second. Um, and that's because the Holy Spirit works faith in believers through effectual calling. Faith is the result, the fruit of effectual calling. Um, we're saved by grace through faith, which is a gift of God. Ephesians 2.8 is a gift of God. Uh, also, uh, Ephesians 1.18, the Spirit enlightens the eyes of your heart uh, to see Jesus, to see his gospel. And so faith is a, a gift of God given through effectual calling. And all subsequent blessings, all blessings that come afterward, are founded on faith. And you can see that, I think, in your handout. I gave you some examples of scripture that point to that. But especially the blessing that follows it directly, justification. Justification is especially founded on faith. And of course, that's, that's um, part of that distinction between faith and works. We're not justified by works, we're justified by faith. Faith is not a work that justifies us. It's the instrument by which we receive Christ's work of righteousness. It's like an open hand that receives something that's already been accomplished. Philippians 3.9, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. And so this justification, this righteousness comes through faith. We receive it through faith. And of course, Romans 3, 24 to 25 says it so explicitly. We are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. And so justification is especially founded on faith. It is received by faith. It's an instrument trying to see how much time we have. Okay, I think maybe we can do it. The assurance of faith. Uh, Can we be assured of our faith? Can we be assured of our salvation? Rome has argued that there is no assurance of faith except by special revelation. God has to tell you that you personally have been saved in order to have assurance of faith. Uh, Armenians and Lutherans argue that you can only have assurance of your present salvation and not your eternal destiny. You can't be assured that you'll go to heaven, but you can be assured of your present forgiveness uh, because, of course, they believe you can fall away. 
The Reformed, on the other hand, argue that assurance is being assured of your eternal destiny, of your eschatological standing before God. In other words, if you're saved now, you will be saved later. Uh, And some quick biblical evidence for it. Uh, Paul says in Romans 8, 38 through 39, uh, and this isn't just that Paul had assurance from God about his own salvation, this Roman Catholic idea of being, you know, given special revelation about your salvation. Uh, Rather, he talks to the Christians generally. I am sure that nothing in all creation will be able to separate us, plural us, from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And this isn't based on something special that uh, God told Paul about the Roman church. Rather, Paul bases it in God's election and Christ's redemption. If you go back, starting in verse 31 of chapter 8 in Romans, he bases assurance of salvation in God's decree of election and in Christ's work of redemption. Um, Assurance is of the essence of faith. We can see this in Hebrews 11.1 very clearly. Uh, Faith is an assurance of things hoped for. And this is reflected in the Heidelberg Catechism, question 21. True faith is also an assured confidence. And at first, when you read that alongside Westminster Confession 18.3, it sounds contradictory. It says, this infallible assurance does not so belong to the essence of faith, but that a true believer may wait long and conflict with many difficulties before he partake of it. And so it sounds like it's contradictory, but it actually isn't. Uh, The Westminster Confession agrees. It says that uh, assurance belongs to the essence of faith. It doesn't say it doesn't belong. It says it doesn't so belong to the essence of faith that somebody can't struggle with their assurance. And so assurance is of the essence of faith, but it's not perfect and it's not constant. We will struggle with our assurance. even though it is part of the essence. And that's because trust or confidence is really assurance, which is the heart of faith, right? Trust is assurance. And so we have to assure ourselves that the gospel promises are true for us because we believe in Christ. But that doesn't mean that someone who truly believes will never struggle with doubt. Our faith or assurance is not perfect. Uh, Believing and needing help with unbelief are compatible, according to Mark 9.24. I believe, help my unbelief, Mark 9.24. And the last thing that I'll cover really fast um, is faith and repentance, the connection between these two things. Uh, Some theologians, like John Murray, argue that faith and repentance are two sides of the same coin, both coming before justification. And so they say faith is turning to God, Uh, repentance is turning away from sin. Two sides of the same coin. Therefore, the initial response to the gospel, which is conversion, right, consists in turning away from sin and to God, and so we're justified by faith and repentance. But we must distinguish between two kinds of repentance in Scripture, at least two kinds. The first is broad repentance. This is the initial response to the gospel. And it's synonymous with conversion, really. It's, it's turning away from your old life and to your new life in Christ. This is how it's used in Acts when the apostles say, repent and be saved. The apostles are not speaking technically. They're not using uh, theological jargon. But they're using repentance to speak broadly of the whole response of the gospel. In other words, turning from our old life to our new life. 
And so in this sense, we have sympathy for Murray's point of view, but we want to be more specific. We want to use these words technically uh, and be precise because Murray distinguishes faith and repentance, but he doesn't give them an order in terms of the order of salvation. Um, but we also see a narrow repentance in Scripture, which is the Christian's lifelong forsaking and confessing of sin. This is usually what we mean when we mean, like, repent from a specific sin. Uh, Paul speaks of this in 2 Corinthians 7, 9, and 10. He distinguishes worldly repentance with godly repentance. And godly repentance is this narrow repentance, repentance unto life. It's an evangelical grace, according to Westminster Confession 15. In other words, it's a gift of the gospel. A sinner repents in part because of the apprehension of his mercy in Christ. And that means they have faith. Repentance is not to be rested in as any satisfaction for sin or any cause of the pardon. And this is in contrast to faith, which is resting in Christ, which is the instrumental cause of our forgiveness in him. And so repentance flows from faith. It's a fruit and necessary consequence of faith. We can't not repent if we've believed in Christ, but it comes afterward. And so narrow repentance belongs under sanctification. It doesn't come before justification. It belongs under sanctification, our lifelong renewal. It's the Christian's lifelong practice of turning away from sin and to God. Um, and so if we're using repentance to talk about conversion, then we're using it in a non-technical way. We're using it broadly, not turning away from specific sins in order to come to Christ, but turning away from our old life to our new life, very broadly. Uh, we can speak of some kind of pre-conversion repentance, but this is more of a sorrow, a grief, a, a fear over your sin before you trust in Christ. You've heard the law, you've heard of your condemnation, and you fear, but you don't really repent. You don't turn away from your sin, per se. Uh, we can see this in Acts 2.37. Those who heard Peter during his Pentecost sermon were cut to the heart, but he still called them to repent. And so there's a distinction between that. So faith and repentance are distinct. We ought not to see them as two sides of the same coin. Um, rather, repentance flows from faith. It's a fruit of faith. Um, we got through all of it. That was, sorry, we, we really blew through that. I don't know if we really have time for questions, um, but if you want to talk to me afterwards, please do. That was packed. Thanks for hanging on.